Hello, you're listening to Second City Sermons, a ministry of Second City Church in Midtown Harrisburg. This fall, we're in the short yet significant New Testament letter of 1 John. John was writing near the end of the first century to many Christians who were either giving up or being tempted to give up on some of the basics of Christian faith. He responds to this by calling them back to correct doctrine, obedient living, and lively devotion. At its heart, this book is calling us to find our life in the life of the beloved, Jesus. We'd love to meet you, and we hope you'll consider coming and joining us each Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the heart of Midtown Harrisburg. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We hope you enjoy this sermon. God bless. Lord God, uh, we uh, come to your word now this morning in uh, this epistle of 1 John, and we we pray, Lord, uh, that your light would shine into our darkness, that your truth would uh, conquer the lies that we uh, believe or attempted to believe or that are spoken by the father of lies. Um, God, that, uh, that we would be people who abide in you, who find the beauty of the incarnation of Jesus, the singular truth that orients all of our lives. God, I know this morning there are, are many of us who are coming here into this space uh, who are coming out of places of grief or sorrow or questions or a doubt, some of great faith and unbelievable joy. And I pray, God, that as we sit in your word, that you'd speak to us and meet us where we are and draw us very close to yourself. God, hear our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, one of the great uh, churches to ever have existed uh, is actually one of the, the, it's considered the last church that was, the really great church that was constructed under the Byzantine Empire, or what some people call the Eastern Roman Empire. And that is the great church, the Hagia Sophia, which means the Holy Wisdom, the Church of Holy Wisdom, in what was Constantinople. You guys probably know the song, Istanbul, Constantinople, you know, which is modern day Istanbul, which would be actually due north of ancient Ephesus, where John was writing his letters, most likely, um, and which is, of course, you know, on the western side of what we would call Turkey now. Um, Constantinople was conquered by the Ottoman Empire in 1453, and then subsequently that wonderful church became uh, a mosque, a place of worship to another god. Anyway, there's an inscription, actually, to this day, in tile on one of the arches of that beautiful church that is attributed to Gregory of Nazianzus, which, who was uh, called Gregory uh, the Theologian. Can you imagine that? There's somebody in church history who's called the Theologian. Why that's the case, theology, of course, is the study of God, theos and uh, logos, the study of the word of God, the study of God. Um, and... Gregory of Nazianzus was one of the great defenders of the doctrine of the Holy Trinity in the 4th century. Okay, so Gregory of Nazianzus. And this is what is written in, in that church. Nipsan anamamata me manon obsin. Y'all caught that? It means wash your hearts, not only your hands. Great phrase. So concerned about being right on the outside. Wash your hearts, not only your hands. Now, here's the thing. If you could see that phrase in the Greek, which is what I read for you, you would have noticed that it's a palindrome. 
which means that it reads the same one way as it does the other. Isn't that remarkable, that whole phrase? It's like this. Children, you probably know some palindromes. Mom, right? Dad, those are palindromes. Kayak, rotator, palindromes. Step on no pets, the palindrome. Was it a car or, or a cat I saw? Palindrome. This is a good one. This is a really good one. A man, a plan, a canal, Panama. The palindrome. Um, one of the longer palindromes was written by the Scottish poet Alistair Reed. T. Eliot, top bard, notes putrid tang emanating is sad. I'd assign it a name, Nat Dirt, upset on a drab pot toilet. I don't even really know what he's talking about there. <laughs> um, Weird Al Yankovic's song, Bob, is totally full of palindromes. Y'all caught that Bob is a palindrome, right? Okay, okay. Um, but this passage I was considering, of course, or this week, of course, I was considering this passage that's before us in 1 John chapter 2. And it's a passage um, about liars and about living and about whether God lives in the flesh or actually whether a fleshly existence outside of the reality of God's existence might be better. It's a passage about those kinds of things. And so I listened to a book that I've, I read a while ago by M. Scott Peck called People of the Lie. Some of you maybe have read that book. It's a very important book, and I, I would highly recommend it with a major caveat. And that's that it's very difficult to read. There's some extremely difficult things in that book. Um, and, and very disturbing stories in that book. Um, Peck was a psychiatrist. He was actually the, the chief of psychology at the Army Medical Center in Okinawa after World War II. Uh, he was also the assistant chief in the office of the uh, assistant chief of psychiatry and neurology in the office of the Surgeon General in Washington D.C. He also uh, practiced practiced privately um, in Milford, uh, Connecticut. Um, religiously, Peck um, was sort of raised in a nominal sort of Christian family, rejected it, uh, practiced Buddhism for a while, practiced an Islamic mysticism for a while and then became deeply convinced of the Christian faith, gave his life to Jesus. Um, but this book, uh, in this book, he's making the argument that evil actually needs to be a psychological category, that psychiatrists can actually say this person is evil. There's evil here. And he's absolutely convinced that this actually has to be a category that can sort of be scientifically studied and observed and sort of diagnosed. Um, he says this, among other things, the evil hate the light, the light of goodness that shows them up, the light of scrutiny that exposes them, the light of truth that penetrate, penetrates their deception. Evil people hate the light because it reveals themselves to themselves. They'll destroy the light, the goodness, the love, in order to avoid the pain of self-awareness. Evil is laziness, carried to its ultimate extraordinary extreme. If you turn to your meditation quote, I put another quote in there, and I actually want to read some of this. 
When I say that evil has to do with killing, I do not mean to restrict myself to corporal murder. Evil is that which kills spirit. There are various essential attributes of life, particularly human life, such as sentience, mobility, awareness, growth, autonomy, will. It is possible to kill or attempt to kill one of those, these attributes without actually destroying the body. Thus, we may break a horse or even a child without harming a hair on its head. Evil, then, for the moment, is the force residing either inside or outside of human beings that seeks to kill life or liveliness. And good is its opposite. Goodness is that which promotes life and liveliness. He says that where evil is, there's always a lie. There's always death. And where there's lies and deceptions, it's always fighting against life. So one thing I learned this week, actually, as I was thinking about this, is that live and evil are a palindrome. They're the opposite. They're the exact opposite of one another. Okay, I want to move to the passage that we have before us in Second John, or sorry, First John chapter 2. But before I do that, I want to remind you that there's sort of three big questions that, uh, that people ask about religion. God, okay? Uh, the first question is this. Is God there? Does he exist? But the second question is, if he exists and he's there, does he care? He aware of, of, of our plight, of the effects of sin in the world, of the situations of suffering. Does God care? The third question is not just does, is he, does he exist and does he care, but is he going to do anything about it? I mean, you can be aware of something and go, that's none of my business. I'm not going to do anything about it. So I think this question actually kind of addresses those, this passage kind of addresses those questions. Um, but I think it addresses it in this regard. Okay, there's two warnings first in this passage, and then there's an encouragement. Two warnings and an encouragement. This is what they are. There's a warning about denying God's presence, right? Does God exist? Warning against denying that. There's a warning against denying God's care, right? If he exists, does he care about it? And then there's actually an encouragement that God has done something, okay? So my, uh, the first thing, is a warning against denying God's presence. Look with me again at 1 John chapter 2. We'll read that first paragraph that you have before you, starting in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and pride of life, not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. I need to say this. This is a passage that has been abused. Um, it's been abused by Christians. The world is just going to burn up. All you have to do is care about souls. Don't concern yourselves with feeding the poor or fair housing. Building buildings that last a long time and that need to be maintained. Don't delight in bread that strengthens our hearts or oil that makes our face to shine or wine that gladdens the heart. As Psalm 4 tells us to take care of all those things and give God glory for them. Um, 
And we actually know that it's not right just to say, do not love the world. Even though that's exactly what it says. Um, because what we learn from this same author in John's gospel is, for God so loved the world. Of course, it begs the question then, right? What's the question it begs? What's the world? <laughs> What's he even talking about? Like, how do, we, what, how do we understand this idea of world here and, and there and all of that sort of stuff? How do we understand this? I think the best way to understand this here is this idea of the world apart from God. Don't love the world to the extent that God is not even a part of it, doesn't need to be taken into consideration. His voice doesn't matter. His design doesn't matter. Just love this stuff. God be damned. He's out there. Who cares about him? Okay, you see verse 15, that love of the world is actually said to be in opposition to love of the Father, right? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So he's putting, these things are in conflict. God and the world here. Um, and then in verse 16, actually, this is really interesting. This is what I want to sit in for a moment. Verse 16 jumps us back to the garden. Did you hear these, these words? Let me read it. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, we read that the fruit there, the fruit was a delight to the eyes, and to be desired. Something of this world could somehow have a greater precedence than God's love for you or his word to you. You look at it and you say, this is what I really want. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes. Which is to say, this passage is calling you back to the first lie. Pride of life. I'm going to put myself in the place of God. God might have said this, but you know what? I probably know better. Okay, the first warning here that we have in 1 John chapter 2 is the warning against God's existence, or at the very least, that his existence matters at all. Denying the reality of God. Denying God's place. It's a warning against this kind of life. God's not there. Or maybe this, at least it would be better off if he wasn't there. We would be better off if he wasn't there. And what you have to see, even in this little bit, is that this denial is, and this lie is in direct confrontation to life. Truly living but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's sit in this for a moment. At the heart of sin is the rejection of God. That's the heart of sin, the rejection of God. At the heart of sin, the first sin, most people believe, has its root in pride. I want to say, you know what, I probably know better. I should probably be God. We might as well live as though God doesn't exist, as though he doesn't call the shots. But I just, I where does that get us? Where does sin get us? Where does buying this life get us? I mean, the serpent long ago, the great, great deceiver, 
The father of lies says, you're not going to die. But I, I mean, I've said recently that sin always creates distance. Sin creates a distance between us and God, but it also creates a distance with us and one another. It creates distance. When we sin, we are always tempted to cover up. Don't see this. You can see this much, but not no more. Sin always invites us into the darkness. Sin always promotes another lie, another deceit. Get back to Peck. He says that the evil in the world, this is really interesting. Um, the e- he says the evil that, that he's met in the world, uh, evil's not evil because of sin per se. This is his kind of, this is what he's thinking. But because of the refusal to acknowledge sin, the evil festers in that kind of place as it's stepped down and not acknowledged and confessed and brought into the light. Um, so he says this. This is kind of interesting. Um, he said he's, he's been to lots of uh, prisons and been to death row and counsel people in those situations. And he said, it's amazing. I actually don't encounter what he calls sort of the psychological evil there so much. Because in that setting, they've been forced to deal with what they've done. And they have to acknowledge it. He says, the most evil I've seen in the world is by the spiritual fat cats. The people that look good. That go to church. That seem to be you know, have it all together. Jesus calls these people whitewashed tombs. Gregory of Nazianzus would say, don't just wash your hands. Deal with your heart. What's going on here is that evil is this dynamic of saying, God doesn't really exist. I can do what I want and I'm not even going to acknowledge that it's sin. Even though in that situation, we're always covering, we're always hiding up, we're always pushing into the dark. We're always people of a lie. So do not love the world. Do not love the world outside of the intimate presence of God. But when God is there, we can delight in bread that strengthens our hearts, oil that shines our faces, wine that gladdens our hearts. One leads to lying and to death. One leads to living and to joy. Okay, so the second warning is not the rejection of God, but it's actually the rejection of God's care, okay? The second warning, I think, is, has to do with the rejection of God's care. We're going to pick up verse 18, and I'm going to read to verse 22. Children, it is the last hour, and as you've heard that anti-Messiah is coming, so now many anti-Messiahs have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not all, all, they are, that they all are not of us. But you've been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the anti-Messiah, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Now here's another passage that's a tricky one, right? There's some words in this that we kind of want to like grab onto, and it just helps us. It makes it so we don't see the rest of it, really what's going on here. Um, 
And it's tricky partly because many of us have lived through the second half of the 20th century in American Christian circles. And those circles at times have been obsessed with this name, Antichrist, which is why I changed it for you. Because you need to hear it differently. Because um, it does make it harder for us to, uh, us to actually hear and listen, right? And let me say this too, that this is not just true of sort of, you know, 20th century American Christianity. This has actually been true for a lot of the church's history, including the time in which John was writing. There really were other people that were saying, hey, I am the Christ. There's other teachings that were saying, I'm the Christ. But there were primarily what he's addressing is this other idea, this other kind of teaching, which is that the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, couldn't possibly come actually in the flesh because fleshly is bad to be discarded, and to be shunned, which is how we tend to read the word world, right? Just fleshly. Um, and so they would say, no, you, that's not, that can't be the Messiah. And so they would leave the community of faith that had at its heart this idea that God took on flesh and dwelt among us. Um, but at the heart of this confusion is the most loud statement that God does care, that he is not just there, but he cares completely and ultimately. The denial that John is talking about here, the rejection of the Messiah, is the rejection of God's care for us. Okay, again, go back with me to the garden. And um, the questions of the first sin in the garden actually do have to do with questions of God's perfect care for us. Why would he give you something and not let you have it all whenever you want it? Is he going to be sufficient? Does he care for me perfectly? Why can't I just do whatever I want to do and take what I want to take? I mean, is God just kind of restrictive? Is he going to actually show up and care? Or, after they do that, does God care that we live a life covering up ourselves? That's addressed there too, right? God says, no, I, understand. I see your shame and let me deal with it and not you. Okay. Um, does God care uh, for us enough to deal with this deceiver? By the way, nobody knows what the deceiver's doing there in the garden. There's no Christian real answer for that. But is God going to deal with it? That's a question that we have right there in Genesis chapter 3. And um, if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, what you find is God's first promise of the Messiah. He says that there's the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. But what you have to hear is that it's the seed of a woman. It is a fleshly reality. This Christ, this Messiah that would come, was going to be something that broke into this world to deal with the lies and the evil. Far from being a God who's distant, saying God cares immensely for this war-torn world, for the lies and the darkness of sin. And there will be a day, this is what Genesis 3 tells us, right from the very beginning, there's going to be a day when that deceiver is crushed, where the evil that spawned forth from his lies will be done away with. God cares immensely. Now, you have to hear that. I mean, I want you to hear that because... Here in this passage, it's not totally, totally clear for us what Antichrist is, which is partly why you want to run all kinds of different directions with it. 
But in John chapter 4, he actually says it very, very explicitly. John chapter 4, verse 6 says, the spirit of the Antichrist is the one who says that Jesus does not come in the flesh. <laughs> so, okay, so just put that in here. That is the, that's the anti-Messiah. The denial that God really does care too much. You know, he might exist, but he's just out there. He's not really in our place caring for us. There's a denial that God can't come in the flesh. He can't be the seed of a woman. And therefore, God doesn't really care too much. John says, and I want you to hear this in the context of the Lord's care for you. Don't buy that lie. Don't buy the lie in the garden that, man, God gave us all this stuff, but he didn't give me that. And I desire that, and so he must not love me. Don't buy that lie. Don't buy the lie that God doesn't know what you're going through and that he doesn't really care what you're going through. Don't buy it. The Christian message is that the Lord came in this flesh. Isaiah tells us that he was the suffering servant. He was acquainted with grief. He knows exactly what you are going through. He cares immensely. Don't buy the lie. All right, so those are our warnings, two warnings in this passage. First, warning against the denial of the presence, of the, the existence of God, the presence of God. The second, warning against the care of God. Um, but I think this little section ends for us. I want to say ends because John does not give us these good categories. I said this last week. It's not like A, B, C, D. He's just kind of like taking us on this journey with him. But I think this last section for us actually ends with an encouragement. Uh, and it sort of addresses this last question. Is God going to do anything? Right? He cares. Or he's there, he cares. Um, and simply I want to say this, that John, I think, in a way here, is, telling, is leaving us with this encouragement that God did show up. He really did. And because of the work of Christ, you really do have union with the Father. That God is no longer distant. The, the, this chasm that sin created has been completely done away with because of the work of Jesus. And you are part of the very family of God. Verse 23, let's pick up there again. I, I read that, uh, but it's sort of a tying pat verse anyway. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he's made to us. Eternal life. Real life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as he taught you, abide in him. So twice here he mentions this phrase. What you heard from the beginning. Um, John doesn't exactly tell us what he means by that phrase again, here at least. But every commentator that I read said that this is a reference to the great apostolic foundations of faith. The core central ideas of the Christian gospel. That Christ lived, that he died, that he rose again, that he ascended, that he's coming back. These core truths of the Christian faith, we confess what we call the mystery of our faith. What well, not just we do, but the church has 
which is Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. That Jesus took a flesh, actually died a fleshly death and he rose to a fleshly life and he's going to redeem this world. Um, so John's own gospel, if you remember, the gospel of John, this same author wrote, begins like this. In the beginning, right? Which what he said is what you heard from the beginning. Well, John says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And then he says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness doesn't overcome it. He said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory of the only son from the father. Again, he's connecting this reality that God takes on flesh. And because God takes on flesh, and because of the work of the Son, we have union with the Father and the Son. And actually here, it also references the Holy One who's given the anointing, which most people believe to be the Holy Spirit. Which is to say all of this. God cares immensely, and he's done something about it completely. He has come, he's shown up, and because of the work of Jesus, he's actually united you to the reality of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God's not only there, and God not only cares, but he acts, and when he acts, he invites you into this life that is life eternal, right? Life with the Trinity, life that's full of light, not darkness, life that's full of truth, not lies and deceit. This is the invitation of the Christian life. This is the confession that we confess. God is there. He cares. He acts. And when he does so, he unites us to himself, the author of life. Perfect goodness came into the world. Perfect goodness in Christ comes into the world. And when that happens, sin is destroyed. Perfect light shines in the darkness. And the thought is that, man, this is so dark. It's been hidden so much that nothing can get down here. That's a deceit. That's the word of deceit. The light shines in the darkness, and darkness cannot overcome that light. The seed of the woman has crushed the head of the serpent. Crushed it. This is reality. Um, evil, like truly evil things, happen because darkness allows it to fester and to grow. Um, kids, to give you a little image, uh, it's almost like you know, you're doing a deep cleaning of your house, which we've done a little bit of recently, and you pick up the couch. You're like, I swear I only put one toy under there. How is my whole toy bin in there? It's just, it's, it's dark and it just like keeps, it grows exponentially. It's crazy. Um, but here's the real sobering thing. One lie gives way to another lie that gives way to another lie. And gives way to another lie. And where there are lies, there's always evil. And where there's evil, there's always death. There's always darkness. Um, but if you can abide in what you've heard from the beginning, and not just wash your hands, but wash your heart. The invitation to you is life. I mean, what the Lord says is he offers life abundantly. Like life that starts to overflow, expand, which is what the Trinity does, right? From the eternal love of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit flows forth creation. 
um, your sin, your sin really is so bad that I know the temptation is to hide it. But think about this. Your, te- your sin is so bad that, that it actually demands God's enfleshment and God's death, okay? That's how bad it is. But you have to hear this, that God actually willingly does that. It's for the joy that was set before him. Paul tells us that Christ endured the cross, despising its shame. Your sin is that bad that you want to hide it and God actually has to die for it. But he does so willingly and joyfully. God comes and he joyfully conquers Satan, sin, and death. This is a longer quote, but this is actually how Peck closes his book. And he actually reads the audiobook, which is kind of fun. I always like it when an author reads it. This is how he ends, uh, at least the, the audiobook, which is a little bit different than um, the written book. It's a little shorter. The healing of evil, scientifically or otherwise, can be accomplished only by the love of individuals. A willing sacrifice is required. The individual healer must allow his or her own soul to become the battleground. Believe me, the stories that he tells of individuals, uh, marital conflicts or unbelievable, unbelievably tragic things in the life of children and youth um, are remarkable, but the healing that he shares at times is unbelievable. Um, sorry, the individual healer must allow his or her own soul to become the battleground. He or she must sacrificially absorb the evil. When what prevents the destru- uh, then, then what prevents the destruction of that soul? If one takes the evil itself into one's heart, how can one's goodness survive? Even if the evil is vanquished thereby, will, it not, will not the good be also? What will have been achieved beyond some meaningless trade-off? And he says this, I cannot answer this in language other than mystery. I can only say that there is a mysterious alchemy whereby the victim becomes the victor. I do not know how this occurs. I know that good people can deliberately allow themselves to be pierced by the evil of others, be broken thereby, and yet somehow not broken. To even be killed in some sense and still survive and not succumb. Whenever this happens, there's a slight shift in the balance of power in the world. He's speaking about uh, psychotherapy. And he's inviting people to, to come out of their lies of self-deceit and self-deception and get help and, you know, actually, and actually learn to help one another. Hugely important lesson in there. But how could you not hear about Jesus in that? <laughs> right? The victim because, becomes the victor. And when that happens, there's the power shift in the world. Brothers and sisters, God is there. He cares. And the seed of the woman crushed the serpent's head. And truth will prevail. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray that we would not be people of the lie, but we would be people who live. Who live in the open, honestly. Be people of the light, as you are light. God, we pray, we pray that we would see the beauty of an incarnate God. 
God who dwelt among us, who went to the ultimate place where Satan seemed to reign, death itself, the powers of politics and religion crucifying you on the cross, sin. And yet you, in becoming the victor, became, becoming the victim became the victor. God, I pray that the cross would be the absolute sign of our joy. A God who cares immensely and does something about the covering up and the evil and the world that is infected with sin and deceived. God, make us into a people that delight in a God who loves us that much. And a people who are willing to do the hard work of self-examination, self-reflection, and therefore confession and openness for you and one another. We might be people of the truth that walk in the way of the Lord with capital T truth. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to Second City Sermons Podcast. We hope this sermon has encouraged you to worship God and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and joining us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening.